On September 12, 1993, Raymond Byrd died on his ranch in Dry Creek Valley, California. He died looking out at the vineyards he and his longtime companion, Robert Benavides, had planted a few years before and were just beginning to bear fruit. Burr was 76 and his body was riddled with cancer. He had barely made it through the production of a Perry Mason TV movie a few weeks before. As a major television presence from the late 1950s into the early 1990s, Burr was eulogized around the world and virtually all the obituaries were as notable for what they said as well as for what they didn't say. What they didn't say was that Raymond Burr was gay. He had remained closeted his whole life. At one point, he went as far as to buy an island in the South Seas so that he and Benavides could live freely away from the prying eyes of Hollywood. But what the obituaries did include was the biographical information that Burr had always given the media, that he was married three times and twice widowed, that he fought in World War II and was wounded on Okinawa, and that he had a son who died of leukemia at a young age. None of that was true, but it was part of Raymond Burr's complicated legacy. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Raymond Burr was a big boy. He weighed 12 pounds at birth, and while growing up in New Westminster, British Columbia, he just kept getting bigger. When he was about five, his family moved to Northern California to live with his mother's family. Then his parents separated. His father went back to British Columbia, and Burr stayed with his mother and grandparents. At that point, his mother sent him to military school, which, next to his parents' divorce, was probably Burr's first major traumatic experience. He was endlessly teased because of his weight, and at one point he was barred from horseback riding in the school's cavalry parade because he was too heavy. He tried to run away from school, and when he came back, he was punished by having the stripes ripped off of his uniform. His one refuge was a garden he discovered on the edge of campus. From his time there, a lifelong love of flowers, particularly orchids, began. Burr's mother eventually saw how miserable he was and brought him back home. She, in turn, went back to school to get her master's degree in music education, and Burr took over the household chores, taking care of his two younger siblings. He graduated from high school and went to work in a J.C. Penney department store, eventually transferring to a store in San Jose. He moved into the local YMCA and formed a theatrical group there. Burr also made his way south to the Pasadena Playhouse, which was well established as a quality local theater, as well as a place to catch the eye of a talent scout with the movies. Two things happened to Burr while he was at the Playhouse. Number one, he began taking acting classes and appearing in plays. 
And number two, he began creating fictional exploits to spice up his biography. He began talking about the time he spent in China, where he went to manage some land owned by his grandfather, and that while he was there, he learned Chinese. Now, Raymond Burr's grandfather barely managed to run a hardware store in British Columbia, much less own anything in China. Anyone checking into Burr's story would have discovered the truth almost immediately, but this was in the days before Google, and besides, and anyway, no one had ever heard of Raymond Burr, at least not yet. In 1940, Burr made his debut in a Hollywood film, playing a chauffeur. He was 23. He had grown to six feet two inches and was always working to keep his weight under control. His blue eyes and his smooth baritone voice were his most striking qualities, but Burr knew he wasn't exactly romantic idol material. He decided to try his luck in the theater, and he moved to New York City, renting an apartment in Greenwich Village. He got a role in a musical review called Crazy with the Heat, which ran for a couple of months, and then jobs got very scarce. Burr headed back to Hollywood and the Pasadena Playhouse. He returned as a performer with a Broadway credit to his name, and he ended up teaching some classes there, as well as taking some. Around this same time, as if to explain the lack of romance in his life, Burr told people that he was recovering from a failed romance with a ballerina he'd been chasing all over Europe. And although he was known around the playhouse as a private person, he began attracting attention with his work in plays. In 1943, Burr felt like he was ready to tackle Broadway again. He moved back to the East Coast and got a role in a drama called The Duke of Darkness. The play closed after 24 performances, but Burr caught the eye of an agent who had contacts at RKO Studios. Within a few months, Burr was back in Hollywood, and along the way he did some stage work in Denver, where his Playbill biography took a few liberties with the truth. It said that he had appeared in London and had toured Australia in the play Night Must Fall, and that he had his own Shakespearean troupe in England. If you've been paying attention, then you can probably guess that Burr had never been outside the States, much less England or Australia or, for that matter, China. The agent who had spotted Burr on Broadway got him a $150 a week contract at RKO. By this time, 1946, the studio was no longer a major Hollywood player, but it had found its groove as the home of dozens of notable film noir B-movies during the late 1940s and early 1950s. Films with femme fatales and private dicks and dark shadows and psycho bad guys and goons for hire. In other words, a place where a big guy with a deep voice and piercing eyes, like Raymond Burr, would fit right in. Burr's first big part at RKO was in a prison melodrama called San Quentin, appearing opposite two other movie tough guys, Lawrence Tierney and Barton McLean. He got good reviews, and things began to percolate. Around the same time, Raymond Burr married a woman. Now, this one is true. In 1943, at the Playhouse, Burr had met an actress named Isabella Ward, known to all as Bella. During the war, Ward had moved to Delaware, but in 1947, she returned to the coast where she and Burr reconnected. 
They married on January 10, 1948, and moved into Raymond's apartment. There was just one catch. One of Burr's friends was also living there, as was Burr's mother and her parents. Now, whether that was the reason or whether there was more to the story, the marriage didn't take off. It was over in months, and neither Burr nor Ward ever seemed very interested in talking about it. About the only thing Ward ever said about it was, quote, some people are just not marrying people, quote. When Burr talked about it, which was rare, he chalked it up to personal problems on the part of both parties. Ward would end up appearing in one film, which was released in 1949. She then moved back to Delaware. The marriage would be formally dissolved four years later. Meanwhile, Burr's movie career was booming. Between 1946 and 56, he appeared in 56 films, almost exclusively as a bad guy, working with top-flight directors like Anthony Mann, Douglas Sirk, Robert C. Odmack, George Stevens, Alfred Hitchcock, Bud Betcher, and Jacques Tournier. In Love Happy, he terrorized the Marx Brothers. In His Kind of Woman, he played a deported gangster who tries to do away with Robert Mitchum. In You're Never Too Young, he's a criminal out to get Jerry Lewis. In A Place in the Sun, he's the DA determined that Montgomery Clift will get the chair for the accidental death of his wife, Shelley Winters. In Rear Window, he's Jimmy Stewart's neighbor across the courtyard who sends his nagging wife on a long trip in pieces. Burr also found steady work on radio shows where, to be honest, his weight didn't matter. As Burr's career blossomed, his biography got phonier. There were claims that Burr had been around the world a number of times, that he went to Stanford and Columbia University, that he taught at Amherst and Columbia, and that he'd fought in World War II, getting wounded at Okinawa and receiving a Purple Heart. It's around this same time that Burr's first dead wife makes her appearance. Her name, he told people, was Annette Sutherland, and that she perished in Europe in 1943 in a plane crash, the same crash that claimed the life of actor Leslie Howard. It's true that Howard died in a plane crash, but the flight manifest shows no one with the name of Annette Sutherland. Burr also claimed that before Annette was killed, she gave birth to a son, Michael, who died of leukemia in 1953 but not before Burr says he took him on a cross-country trip, which would be a pretty good trick because Burr appeared in eight movies between 1952 and 53. Now, based on this timeline, Michael also would have been around when Burr married Isabella Ward in 1948. But when Ward was asked about it, her reply was terse. I never met him, she said, because there was no son. We can speculate all day about why Burr spun these tales. To create sympathy by giving himself a tragic, pitiable past. To create a distraction from his homosexuality. To give Hollywood gossip columnists some drama to write about. At any rate, those stories were repeated in almost every story written about Burr, and he never made any attempt to set the record straight. By the early 1950s, Burr was making $100,000 a year, but his weight was almost always an issue in getting roles. At his peak, he weighed 340 pounds, 
If he needed to slim down in a hurry for a part, he'd live on a diet of cottage cheese, fruit, and cigarettes. And even though it may have seemed unrealistic, Burr yearned to play the hero for a change, maybe even a romantic hero. And that may have played into the fact that in 1956, Raymond Burr began making the gossip columns because he was often seen in the company of a young actress, Natalie Wood. He was 38, she was 17. So, you. They had appeared in a film together called A Cry in the Night and hit it off. Burr was a gourmet and a wine expert. From all accounts, he loved teaching Wood about the finer things in life, and she was a willing pupil. But when they made plans to attend the Oscars together, the bosses at Wood's home studio, Warner Brothers, stepped in. They ordered her to attend the ceremony with another, more acceptable contract player, Tab Hunter. Also closeted, but whatever. Whether the romance did break Burr's heart, or whether he saw it as another tragic affair to add to his portfolio, he willingly talked about the episode to gossip columnists, especially Hedda Hopper, whose friendship he had cultivated since his days at the Pasadena Playhouse. In the early 1950s, Burr gathered a group of performers from the Playhouse and began visiting military troops in camps on the West Coast, and then Korea. Burr would end up going to Korea several times on these unpublicized trips, and when the Vietnam conflict began, he took a show troupe there several times as well. But back to Burr's career. By the mid-1950s, Burr was turning 40 and beginning to worry about being typecast. He was tired of playing the heavy, pun kind of intended. So when he got the chance to audition for a more sympathetic role on a TV series, he grabbed it. Which brings us to a soundstage on the 20th Century Fox lot in 1956, and you can probably guess the name of the show. Perry Mason was a pre-sold title. The character had already been a part of American popular culture for almost 25 years. Earl Stanley Garner's first Mason adventure was published in 1933. In addition to dozens of Mason books, there had been a series of Perry Mason movies in the 1930s and a radio soap that ran for 12 years. The Perry Mason TV series was to be television's first hour-long courtroom drama, and Gardner had demanded total control over the show's content and direction. He had been disappointed at the Perry Mason movies, which often portrayed Perry as a bit of a drunken clown, and was determined that wouldn't happen again. Such a high-profile project attracted big Hollywood names, the conventional wisdom was that Perry would be played by a star like Fred McMurray or William Holden, but over 100 actors had been tested for the role. Before his audition, Burr had slimmed down on one of his diets, but the producers didn't call him for the role of Perry. They wanted him to audition for the role of Hamilton Berger, the hapless DA who would lose to Perry in every single episode. Burr willingly read for the role, but he also asked to read as Perry Mason. What happened next isn't totally clear. In one version, Errol Stanley Gardner saw Burr's audition film and shouted, That's Perry Mason! 
In another, Gardner was in the studio when Burr shot his test. But the decision of who would play Mason belonged to Errol Stanley Gardner, and to him, Burr had that magic quality, authority. Burr was signed to a three-year commitment. Nobody even knew if the show would last that long. Burr's co-star, Barbara Hale, signed on as Perry's secretary, Della Street, and she expected the show to last only about 18 episodes. Burr was given the choice of getting his entire season salary up front or taking a piece of the show that might make millions in syndication. To his later regret, Burr took the money, although the show would still make him very wealthy. The rest of the cast was pulled together. William Tallman as Hamilton Berger, the DA. William Hopper as Paul Drake, Perry's personal PI. Ray Collins as Lieutenant Tragg, the police detective who amazingly showed up at every single murder scene Mason was ever involved in. It's worth noting here that William Hopper was the son of powerful gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. She'd already known Burr for years, but hiring Hedda's son could be seen as a nice insurance policy to keep anything untoward about Burr out of the press. Perry Mason was put into a Saturday night time slot on CBS, opposite another very popular Perry, The Perry Como Show on NBC. And for the first few weeks, Como beat Mason. But about midway through the season, the seesaw tipped the other way, and before long, Como was moving to a more hospitable time slot. Perry Mason ran on CBS from 1957 to 1966, at a time when the typical TV series produced as many as 39 episodes a season. In all, there were 275 Perry Mason episodes, and as the star, Burr was in 90% of the scenes. The grueling schedule led him to make a couple of changes. For one, he began sleeping at the studio during the six-day work week. And second, he got really, really good at reading a teleprompter. And third, he used his grueling work pace as an excuse for why he wasn't dating women. In 1959, one of the fan magazines ran an article about Burr headlined, No Time for Marriage. In addition to his work schedule, Burr had to pay extra special attention to his weight. The show's producer, former actress Gail Patrick Jackson, kept a scale on the set at all times. During the late 1950s and early 1960s, Perry Mason was one of the most popular shows on TV. Each episode had the same structure. The first few minutes involved the commission of a crime, usually a murder. Then would come the accusation aimed at an innocent client who always hired Perry. Then would come an investigation and things would start to look bad for Perry's client. But then finally in the courtroom, the real culprit would wither under Perry's intense questioning. And on your way up to Thompson's apartment, you saw Amory Fallon asleep on the stairway. Why, why, I'd... Amory Fallon, unaccustomed to drink, had fallen asleep. He slept for 45 minutes without knowing it. But you knew it, didn't you? You were going to see Thompson because the two of you had a date to sell the perfected Martin formula to Mr. Carlos Silva of Mexico, so you didn't dare wake Fallon. All right, all right. Fallon was there asleep. I saw him. But I didn't kill Thompson. No. The killer was Thompson's accomplice. He had doctored the books. 
He had to then set the fire to destroy this evidence against himself. But Thompson still had the microfilm. When the killer left Thompson's apartment, he found Amory Fallon's note. He saw Amory Fallon asleep on the stairway. So he went back to the apartment. No. No, what are you talking about? The killer accidentally overheard Thompson's phone call to Vivian Ames, a phone call setting up a perfect alibi for him. So he opened the door, went in, and then he killed Ned Thompson. No, no, I didn't do those things. I didn't kill Ned Thompson. And you didn't plant Fallon's note in no, his pocket? No, no! No, Mr. Nichols. You didn't kill Thompson. But you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Ned Thompson! I killed him! The show was such a hit that Burr became TV's highest paid actor. He won two Emmy Awards. Barbara Hale won one. Burr became such a big star that he parodied his image on the Jack Benny program. In a sketch, when Perry Mason enters the courtroom, the jury applauds and the judge asks for his autograph. With fame came more and more press inquiries about Burr's private life. Burr always declined to comment about stories regarding his dead wife and son, which led reporters to simply rehash previous inaccurate accounts. It was in 1960, on the set of Perry Mason, that Burr met the companion who would be with him for the rest of his life, an actor named Robert Benavides. Around the set, he was known as a kind of flunky to Burr. Their relationship was so discreet that even the people on the set had no idea they were involved, or at least not one they ever verbalized. The cast of Perry Mason was closely knit, and Burr was an extremely loyal friend. When he heard that character actor George Stone was nearly blind and unable to find steady work, Burr had him cast as the court clerk on the show. He would be paid for doing nothing more than sitting in a chair and looking busy and Burr really brought his power to bear when William Tallman, who played District Attorney Berger, was fired from the show after being busted at a wild Hollywood party in the spring of 1960. Tallman was acquitted and Burr furiously lobbied for him to be brought back. The producers finally agreed and when Tallman returned, Burr saw to it that the set was decorated with welcome back signs. Burr was also a generous donor to charitable causes and sponsored foster children in Korea and Vietnam. He once flew to Massachusetts to visit a badly burned little girl who said she wanted an autographed photo of Perry Mason more than one of President Eisenhower. But Burr wasn't yet done with fuzzing up his resume by adding one more wife. The exact date of the marriage is hazy and the story is that she died shortly afterward. No one seemed to have any memory of ever having met her. In the fall of 1962, after five seasons, Perry Mason began to show signs of weakness. The show was moved to Thursday nights, where it was beaten in the ratings by The Donna Reed Show and Leave it to Beaver on ABC. And within a year, Perry Mason had dropped out of the top 25. In 1965, Burr used some of his wealth to buy an island just northeast of Fiji in the South Pacific. Nitumba was 4,000 acres with a population of 167. You could only get there by plane, then a hop to another island, then a 45-minute taxi ride, and then a six-hour boat ride. 
Burr became a kind of king on Nitumba, even overseeing the construction of a hospital. Perry Mason went off the air in 1966, and Burr kept telling everyone how much he was relishing retirement. But he needed a steady revenue stream to keep financing his island paradise, and within a few months, he signed up for another TV series. In late 1966, Burr filmed a pilot for a series called Ironside. He played a San Francisco police detective who was paralyzed by a sniper's bullet and got around in a wheelchair. He was given his own special unit made up of younger detectives, including a woman and an African-American. The pilot for Ironside aired in 1967, but Raymond Burr wasn't in town to see it. He was taking another tour of Vietnam. NBC wanted an Ironside series, and Burr was agreeable, but he had much more bargaining power than he had 10 years earlier when he was cast as Perry Mason. So he had demands. One was that he would own 51% of the show. Two was that he wouldn't film any outside scenes. And three was that he wouldn't work on Fridays. Ironside premiered in the fall of 1967, and just a few weeks later, NBC aired a special called Raymond Burr Visits Vietnam, consisting of interviews with soldiers. Ironside was never a giant hit, but it was a solid performer. Burr came to hate the fact that he was stuck in a wheelchair all the time. It made it even harder for him to lose weight. And yet, when it was suggested that Ironside would have surgery that would allow him to walk again on the show, Burr angrily vetoed the idea, saying it would betray the handicapped viewers who had come to identify with the character. Unlike the team atmosphere on Perry Mason, Burr was the undisputed star of Ironside and made sure everyone knew it. The supporting cast went through a few changes. Barbara Anderson, who won an Emmy for her work as Detective Eve Whitfield, left the show out of dissatisfaction with her limited role. Ironside ran until early 1975, and Burr was ready for the series to end. His health was beginning to decline, thanks to his weight and smoking, and in the mid-1970s, he had his first heart attack. There was one more regular series for Burr, a show called Kingston Confidential, that had the misfortune to be scheduled against Charlie's Angels. Because of health issues, Burr sold Nitumba in 1983 for $2 million, nearly 10 times what he'd paid for it 18 years earlier. He and Robert bought a house in North Hollywood and Burr pursued his love of flowers. At about this same time, Fred Silverman had an idea. Silverman was just coming off of a record-breaking run as programming chief on all three major TV networks. To learn more about that, you can check out our podcast called Silverman's Travels. Now Silverman was an independent producer in partnership with Dean Hargrove, and his big idea could be summed up in three words, Perry Mason returns. Burr was ready to get back in the saddle, and he liked the idea of a Perry Mason TV movie where the story could be told over a two-hour period. The only other surviving cast member was Barbara Hale, who was recovering from hip surgery, but with Burr's urging, she signed on. Her real-life son, William Catt, 
who was the star of the popular series The Greatest American Hero, joined the cast as Paul Drake Jr., a private eye just like his dad. Perry Mason Returns was shot in the summer of 1985 and aired on December 1st. It was the number one show of the week, even beating The Cosby Show. And it was the second highest rated TV movie of the year. Another Perry Mason movie aired the following May, and it did even better in the ratings. So Perry Mason was back, with a work schedule much more to Raymond Burr's liking. He and Benavides sold their home and moved to Dry Creek Valley in Sonoma County, California, where they went into the winemaking business. The Perry Mason movies kept coming, three or four each year, and when Burr floated the idea of an Ironside reunion, NBC jumped at that as well. In early 1991, doctors discovered a tumor in Burr's colon, and during the surgery, doctors also removed a cancerous growth from his spine. Radiation followed, and true to form, Burr told no one. In the summer of 1993, Burr completed filming of the Perry Mason movie The Case of the Killer's Kiss. He was so weak from the illness and its treatment that he barely made it through production but at the rap party he gave no sign that this would probably be his final appearance as the character who'd had such a major impact on his life. He went back to Dry Creek Valley with Benavides. By August, the cancer had spread to his lungs and brain, but he wanted no morphine. He told friends he wanted to stay alert to see the fall harvest, falling short by only a few days when he died on September 12th. The New York Times obituary mentioned Burr's non-existent son and marriage, but there was no mention of Benavides. The LA Times at least listed Benavides as, quote, longtime business associate and companion, unquote. Perry Mason co-producer Dean Hargrove later said, I'd always assumed Raymond was gay because of the relationship with Benavides. Raymond had the ability to mythologize himself to some extent and some of the stories about his past tended to grow as time went by, Hargrove said. Burr's death certificate listed his military service and said he was a widower. Benavides was listed as friend. Burr left his entire estate, valued at $30 million, to Benavides, who still runs the Raymond Burr Winery in Sonoma. NBC commemorated Burr's death with a TV special, and a rerun of a Perry Mason movie and of The Return of Ironside. The network tried another Perry Mason or two with different actors in the lead role, but they just didn't fly. It just proved what everyone already knew. There was no one else like Raymond Burr. My name's David Inman. Thanks for listening. See you later.